all leaders, whether we realize it or not. Some of us are formal leaders. Some of us are informal leaders. Some of our leadership is temporary. Some of it is more of a permanent basis. Uh, We're leaders within our marriages. We're leaders within our families as parents. We're leaders within our community, in our church, and even within our friendships, in our work environments. We set the pace or provide an example. We make the sacrifice. We work for solutions to provide resources to maybe clean up a mess or simply maybe to just give advice. To influence. Whatever it is you lead, you serve it. It does not serve you. And that is the main difference between worldly and biblical leadership. And so, in the first chapter of the book of Micah, God's judgment on Israel is graphic. Micah pictures God jumping from mountain to mountain, bringing devastation upon the northern kingdom of Israel. Micah made it clear that the southern kingdom, Judah, would be next in its receiving of godly discipline. In Micah chapter 2, the reasons for Israel's bad times are given. There's no uncertain terms that Israel is going to see some discipline from God, and it's not just by chance, it's not an arbitrary act of nature or time. It is God's chosen strategic, pinpointed discipline of a nation who he loves, but also a nation who he has chosen to be his representative people on the face of this planet. In Micah chapter 2, Micah makes that very clear. That is the purpose for Israel's bad times. Powerful people oppress the poor. Their homes, their land, and their inheritance are just stolen. There is absolutely no one to go for, for protection. The people, the poor people, the oppressed, are on their own. They will reap, though, what they sow. Micah and the false prophets clashed with one another. The false prophets continued to dog the true prophets. They criticized them. They pointed things out that were their weaknesses. They critiqued them. They analyzed them. They criticized them. But Micah fired back. He accused them of having an incomplete view of God, that God, they believe that God would never allow His people to ever suffer. There would always be good times for God's people. That only happy days existed for the nation of Israel. But Micah knew this was not true. Because God's relationship with Israel was both unconditional as well as conditional. That if God's people veered off course, if they entered into a series of national sins... They would suffer for it. They would still be God's people, and God still would love them. But just like a parent disciplines a child, God would discipline and course correct his nation. The false prophets didn't teach that, though. They only taught that there were only happy times in the future for the nation of Israel. Micah was clear that God would discipline his people, but in the final analysis, he would most certainly bless them because they were his people. And so then... We see in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, Micah's opening lines. And he says this in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Micah. He says, Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice? You, who hate good and love evil, 
who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil that they have done. And so he asks a hypothetical question to the leaders of Israel. He asks them, do you not know what justice is? Do you know what it is? Do you know what it's not? Do you have a working definition of justice? Because if you know the Torah and its regulations and civil code, then you would know justice. So these leaders of Israel should know the Torah. And um, God's Word certainly backs that up. They would know the difference between right and wrong. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, this is recorded. After you are settled in the towns that you will receive from the Lord your God, the people in each town must appoint judges and other officers. Those of you that become judges must be completely fair when you make legal decisions, even if someone important is involved. Don't take bribes to give unfair decisions. Bribes keep people who are wise from seeing the truth and turn honest people into liars. People of Israel, if you want to enjoy a long and successful life, make sure that everyone is treated with justice in the land the Lord is giving to you. And so one of my most favorite chapters in the book of Isaiah is the first chapter where Isaiah just lays into Israel and criticizes it for its lack of justice. In verses 16 and 17, he writes this, Wash yourselves clean. I hate your filthy deeds. Stop doing wrong and learn to live right. See that justice is done. Defend widows and orphans and help the oppressed. So the leaders of Israel should know what justice is. They should know what it's not. But instead, they hated the good and they actually loved evil. Everything was flip-flopped. It was reverse. It was a mirror image of truth. Their ignorance and their upside-down values will result in the effects that wild animals have on people. They tear people apart. Why? Well, because they need to eat. They're going to consume them. So they strip the flesh, they break the bones of weaker animals, so that way they can consume their flesh. God will not respond when they cry out for help. Because from God's perspective, it's not time for help and relief. But it's time to learn the hard way. And so don't bother crying out to God. Because at some point in time, Israel will receive the discipline that they desperately need. And so God taught justice. And the people uh, in their bones, uh, they expect justice from their leadership. But again and again and again in this life, in this fallen, broken world, we're disappointed. That's why the Bible speaks so much about government. Because every type of government is imperfect. But the one that is the theocratic monarchy of the future, that will be what we all thirst for, and what will be delivered. And that is when Jesus Christ rules on the throne. Then we will be satisfied. Then we will experience 
the implementation of perfect government. So poor civil government has no moral compass, and it always ends badly. So this theme of uh, hating what is good and loving what is evil and flip-flopping those two things seems to be very part and parcel of the Old Testament, as well as our own experience in this country in these days. In Isaiah chapter 5, 20 and 21, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness? Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Wow. That was a descriptor of 8th century Israel, 8th century B.C. Israel. It's also a very good descriptor of the United States, if not the entire Western world, in the early 21st century. Those leaders, those leaders in our own country who allow drag queen shows for children. And then when other politicians who are more of a traditional worldview fight against those activities to make them illegal, they fight tooth and nail to make sure that those events are legal and are implemented within our public system. They work hard to make sure. They use all of their political resources and energies. Everything is at their fingertips to make sure that children, young children, are exposed to drag queen shows. They allow promiscuous and immoral books in school libraries, but ban prayer in the Bible. And even in this school district, the Keller Independent School District, as well as other school districts around it, um, our school board members had a, had a fight to keep the Bible in the school libraries and to keep certain books out that were not appropriate for children or even for adults. Spoke to one of our school board members, and she's a believer, goes to a different church, and she said to me, Pastor John, I've never experienced such an oppressive amount of spiritual warfare from this relatively small group of people who were cursing at us and wishing bad things would happen to us because we voted against them. And that's here in Keller, Texas, USA. These same people demand abortion in all nine months with no limitations. Even the most liberal politician 20 or 30 years ago would say, we need to make abortion safe, legal, and rare. But those words are gone from their lips these days. Now they demand abortion be legal in all nine months of pregnancy, even up to the very day before birth. Uh, that it be legal, and then you have to pay for it too. They demand it. Those who advocate puberty blockers for young children, even against their parents' knowledge. Those who advocate gender-affirming care, which is really a euphemism for mastectomies and castration of children, and the injection of hormones of the opposite sex. And then they even fight against legislation initiated by politicians of a traditional worldview to block those procedures. And they fight tooth and nail again to make sure that those things are implemented within our public system, all within the ignorance of those children's parents. You see, these government officials, elected and non-elected officials, are advocates of perversity on a scale we have never seen in our lifetimes. It's happening 
in our world in real time. But yet, I don't even know if we fully absorbed it yet. Because we all know change has always happened. But it used to take a generation or two for things to shift in the right or wrong direction. But now, as I've said many times, even change itself has changed. Change has accelerated. And it's happening so quickly that it takes place in just a matter of weeks or months. And so, what stands in the way of this? What, what, what is God's plan? What does he say? And I believe strongly that the church must stand against these things. Why? Well, because we've already been giving our marching orders to be salt and light. And of course, the gospel is the tip of the spear of that message of salt and light. It always will be and always should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it contains other messages as well that we are to have a positive effect on our culture and our society in every aspect. As we present the gospel, in our going, we are to make disciples. I was involved quite heavily in the pro-life movement ever since the 1980s, but even after that, but I, I noticed in the 1980s that there were a lot of Christians who said, oh, you know, we shouldn't be involved in this. We should just do evangelism and discipleship. And and and, and I would go out and we do pro-life activities, you know, saving babies and talking to people and rallies and things like that. And they'll have a certain purpose to them and so on. And, and many of our allies who are coming from Catholicism or other faiths, and some of them were saved, but a lot of them were not saved. And so we interacted, we interfaced with our allies who were also pro-life any people coming from Mormonism, whatever. And you know what happened? A lot of them got saved. And so in our being salt and light, we were just that because wherever we go, whether we go to stand for truth or whether we go to evangelize directly, we're evangelizing in all of those cases. And so we're being salt and light. And the God works. And so it's really a, a Greek view that says, okay, what we do is we separate we separate the physical from the spiritual. And so therefore, Christians and pastors especially should not say anything about politics or government. Well, you, I did a series in January on government in the Bible. The Old Testament and the New Testament talks a lot about government. <laughs> a lot. And so whatever the Bible talks about, that's my job to talk about. And so the Bible talks about it, so I'm going to talk about it as well. There's nothing like, oh no, off limits that you can't say it. See, the, the, the Bible is written from a Hebrew mindset, in that, and, and everything is his. Everything is his. That's what Psalm 24 teaches us. So yes, we must not. We must be the conscience of our nation. Whatever nation you're a part of, speak out. Speak out biblically on what is going on. We are the conscience of the nation. We can't expect businesses or the media or higher education to do it because oftentimes that's where the corruption begins. I'm not so much afraid of the federal government, you know, taking away our religious liberties, that's possible. But you know what entity is the most hostile to a Christian worldview? It's some of our, most of our major corporations. Those are the ones that are most aggressive against us at this point. 
And so they cannot be the watchdogs. I think continually I'm haunted by what happened in Germany during World War II where six million Jews were sent to death camps and the church barely spoke up. In fact, as the, the trains, train loads of Jews were being bused to Buchenwald and Auschwitz, some of them went past church buildings on Sunday morning. You know what they did? They sang louder so they could not hear the screams and the cries of the Jews being sent to those death camps. There were a few exceptions, but by and large, I think that's one reason why the church in Germany and all of Western Europe is so pitifully weak. is because they didn't have any guts. They didn't have any backbone to stand up against this sheer human evil of Nazism in that case. So we are the conscience of the nation. We've got to speak out and act out on these different issues. But unfortunately, the church can be just as corrupt as businesses or the media or higher education. And that's what Micah rails against in verses 5 through 12. Look what it says here. He says, this is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they are prepared to wage a war against him. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness, without divination. The sun will set for the prophets, and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed, and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces, because there is no answer from God. But as for me... I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob. Hear this, you rulers of the house of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and, and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. So if the, if the false prophets, if they got money, you know what they would preach? Whatever message you liked, your ears were itchy, they'd be glad to scratch them for you and just fill in the blanks with the content of your choice. If you give them money, you get good things. But if they don't get paid, if they don't get their paycheck, it's going to be bad news for you, Buster. Their mottos were really, of course, not actually, but in reality, truthfully, they were give people what they want and just don't rock the boat. The American church, by and large, I think. But ultimately, when they ask for the true word from God, they're not going to get it and they'll be embarrassed because God's not going to speak through them anymore, because, you know, really, why should he? 
They are full of greed, and they are not full of the power of God. Verse 8. But Micah, he injects his motivation here. He injects what fuels and energizes him. He was full of spiritual power. He says, I'm full of justice and power. I know justice and power. If I only knew justice without power, it's meaningless. There's no bite to the bark. But if I only know power without justice, I am a tyrant. But Micah had both. He was complete. He was balanced. He spoke with authority. I can't wait to, wait to meet these guys, these Joels and these Micahs, the ones who only had a few pages, but what is on their pages is absolutely phenomenal stuff. Blows you away if you take the time to read it and then read the newspaper. Micah has these things to be able to tell Jacob. Uh, I'm, willing to tell, I'm willing to tell Israel the bad news of their sin uh, because I love them so much. The false prophets would only tell you the good things about you. But the true prophets would tell you would tell both the good, the bad, and the ugly. That way, you have a shot at changing and repenting of your bad choices and wrong beliefs. So they didn't really love Israel. You know what? They only loved themselves, and they were using their positions to become more popular and wealthy. That's sad. And so. Micah was able to tell everything. And then in verse 9, he says, hear this. And in verse 11, he says, he reveals the motives of the false prophets. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. And then as a result, Jerusalem, uh, Zion, it'll be laid waste. It'll be utterly blown apart. It'll be destroyed. And about a hundred years or so, maybe a little less than a hundred years after he wrote this, that's exactly what happened. Temple, the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple, and they just wrecked the city. And then it all happened again in 70 A.D. with Titus. So it was not just fulfilled once; it was actually fulfilled twice so far. And so poor spiritual leadership seeks popularity and comfort as it leads its followers into disaster. So. You know, looking at the whole Council of Scripture, Micah 3 does a good job in telling us what false leadership does and what it looks like. But we've got to look to the rest of Scripture because I don't want you to leave here only knowing the negative. You also have to know the positive, too. It's not fair to just leave you with the negative. You've got to know the whole story. And so I believe there are at least three biblical principles that we see about good leadership in the pages of Scripture. And... Um, in Psalm 78:72, short verse, but a lot of heavy-duty content there. And it says, And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands he led them. A good leader will have good character, but a good leader will also have good skills. Uh, he or she will be able to do things, at least at the level of competence. Skills you can always increase, but character should stay the same, assuming it's good. 
So both are important. That's what David did. David led his. He was a David was a lousy husband and father, but a great king. Yeah. He had his weak areas. And so the first principle of leadership is found in that one verse, that we have to have skill as well as character. They are good at what they do, but they're also trustworthy and have integrity. The second principle of leadership that I find all through Scripture is that they had a private victory before their public success. And that's one reason why Paul says, don't make a new believer a leader, because they have not been formed yet. They have not yet been transformed. They haven't been honed. Their rough edges have not been worn off yet. So if you just look in Scripture, in the Old and the New Testament, you see the Josephs, the Moses, the Daniels, and the Pauls. And all of these people did not have an easy life. They went through deep loss and disappointment. They went through health problems and persecutions and oppositions. And even Jesus was tested. Jesus went through experiences on earth that he could not have gone through in heaven. And they helped form him into an even better leader because he could say that we have a high priest who identifies with us and who empathizes with us. And so Jesus went through an awful experience, even before his death. So they had a private victory before public success, and I reflected on this in my own life. And um, yeah, as many of you know, my, my first pastorate, I'll just put it real lightly, it didn't go well, okay? Enough, enough of the story for now. But that was only a year and a half after I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, and it was, I thought it was all over with. And I thought to myself, I said, John, that's what I call myself because that's my name. I said, John, maybe you should sell insurance or do something else. And then my prophet, my wife Carolyn, the prophet Carolyn, said to me, we spent $35,000 on seminary. You're going to be a pastor, Buster. <laughs> I said, I have heard from the Lord <laughs> through the prophet, yes. And so I said, okay, I'll give it one more shot, and we'll see if this works out. You know, So far... After 30 years, it's, it's working out pretty well, I guess, but that's because of you guys. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but, but I remember those days. I remember thinking, I remember lying on the couch in our mobile home in Flower Mound, Texas, and, and I remember, remember thinking, and it was like 2 in the morning, and I can remember thinking, maybe I should just throw it all away and bag it because it's, maybe I'm not, I shouldn't do this because it hurts so much. And then, then I put it all together and thought, no, maybe I should. And then I thought, this, this is what honed me. I thought, John, there I go again, you know, John, um, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this ministry thing? And it was always because, well, I can't think of anything better to do, so I'll do this. You know. um, and, 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 I, and, and so my motives were, were, were made much clearer for me, and that was kind of my private victory, you could say, before God does anything with you. He allows you to go through really some bad times. So that's a warning for those of you young men and women who are considering ministry, and I hope we do have some, by the way, that you're going to go through some really bad times, but that's okay, because that will test you and hone you and make you into a better leader of whatever it is 
you're going to lead. And so all of these Old Testament and New Testament leaders had private victories before a public success. You see, after all, uh, the good news is I tell pastors when I go to conferences, you know, uh, the, the world measures success with totally different metrics. They, they, use mo- they use money in numbers of people, you know, primarily, or influence, or how many books you've written. And that's the measure of success. And that's the worldly view of success. But God has a totally different metric for success. He measures it uh, in a totally different way. He measures it by faithfulness, stick-to-itiveness, consistency, persistence, hanging in there, doing a good job, doing a good job with character and ever-increasing skill. And so that's what we will hear, hopefully, at the judgment seat of Christ, not Wow, you did really well with the number of people. You grew a big church, or, or you raked in several million dollars a year, or uh, you, you got two houses and three cars and a corporate jet. Good job. No, you're not going to hear any of that. That's all nonsense. But you, what you will hear are the same words that I hopefully will hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what it takes. And then, you know, the good news is we're in total control of that. We can choose to be faithful every day, and that will build up to months and years and ultimately a lifetime. Or we can flake out. What God's looking for is faithfulness with skill and character attached, of course. So the first principle of leadership is skill and character. The second is private victory before public success, that owning process. And then the third principle of leadership is that Biblical leadership desires to serve for the benefit of followers and not primarily oneself. And the biblical evidence I find for that is in Matthew chapter 20. Oops. Okay, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 and 22. Chris, if you get that up, let me know. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, and it says this, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. He said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, he answered. And so, what is the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, doing there? Oh, we got it up on the screen now. That's great. What, what, is, what is she doing? And one commentator said, basically what <coughs> James and John's mother is doing here is, She's asking for power for her two boys. Oh, they're such good boys, you know. You're gonna, you, Jesus, you're going to want one on your right, one on your left. Maybe secretary of um, state and then attorney general on the other side. You know, whatever positions, as long as they're close to you and everyone can see that they are in this small cadre of leaders who have all the power and receive all the glory and so one commentator said, yeah, basically, James and John's mom was asking for Jesus to make 
James and John, the fourth and fifth members of the Trinity. <laughs> so this is what I want. And this, this is a worldly view of leadership, that you become a leader, and then everyone is impressed by you. Everyone likes you. And yeah, sure, you've got some responsibilities and so on. But yet, you get this raw power. And you can do whatever you want. But leadership is not about raw power, but rather the gentle and firm release of authority to bring about change. So being a leader doesn't mean you're a doormat, because Jesus uses the term servant for a leader. But the leader still has authority. It's just that he uses that authority for the benefit of the group. You see, up until when Jesus came, that was the dominant view of leadership. But when Jesus came, Jesus turned that all right side up. And he said, I am here not to be served, but to serve. And Jesus, of course, had the ultimate power and authority. He could do anything he wanted, but yet he didn't. He, he, he chose, he chose to not demand to be treated like a king, even though he was. But instead, he washed the feet of the disciples. And he healed, and he fed, and he served. And then ultimately, he served with his own life, and he died for us. This is leadership. It's not, it, is, it is not about raw power, but the gentle and firm and confident and strategic release of authority to bring about change. So that way the entity of whatever you serve, if it's your wife, if it's your family, if it's your company, if it's your church, the church is the recipient of the authority that you have been given. A few years ago there was a book written from good to great. The author was Jim Collins. He spent a lot of time analyzing 11 large corporations and analyzed what moved them from the category of good. They made profits. They turned out a good product or service. They were effective. But then a new leader took over, a CEO took over, and within a few years they transitioned to great. They were the leaders of their field. They were cutting edge, and their profits soared, and the morale of the company was high. The stocks, the value of the company went through the roof. And so he analyzed, what did these leaders do? And he found that the difference was in the character and the demeanor of the head person. He called them level five executives. And the characteristics of the level five leader will surprise you. They were quiet. They were humble. They were reserved, almost shy. They were all gracious, pretty mild-mannered self-effacing, understated. They did not believe their positive press clippings, but at the same time, without a hint of any contradiction, they all had unwavering resolve. They all insisted with everyone over a long period of time that that corporation adopt and implement and make consistent certain core values. They insisted on the implementation of those core values. That is what transformed the company. Many of these men and women were not written about until 20 years later. 
And that's totally in contrast to the level four leader. The level five leader builds an enduring greatness through a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. So he's not a doormat. He or she is not a doormat. They still get things done, but they do it largely from behind the scenes with consistency and faithfulness. The level four leader looks to the mirror for credit and the window for blame, but the level five leader looks to the window for credit and the mirror for blame. He or she takes the responsibility, him or herself. The greatest, one of the greatest examples of a level five leader, I think, is President Dwight Eisenhower, a quiet, self-effacing man who insisted that certain things be done in a certain way. He was not so much a brilliant tactician, but he was brilliant at diplomacy and logistics. That's why he was the man for the job for the D-Day invasion of France in June 1944. And it wasn't until years later that they discovered a letter that went unused, a letter that he composed and was addressed to his boss, the commander-in-chief at that time, was Franklin Roosevelt, just before his death. And the letter was to Franklin Roosevelt and Eisenhower in the event that the the D-Day invasion was a disaster, Eisenhower took 100% of the blame. But it didn't turn out to be a disaster. It was a fantastic success over time. And so he was the one who distributed the glory to his generals, his staff, to his fellow soldiers in arms, as well as his nation and its allies. My friends, you and I are called to be Christ-like leaders. That's what we're called to be. You might say, I'm never a leader, but I disagree with you. I think sometimes we're all at least informal leaders, even if it's within a friend relationship, whether it's in your neighborhood or whether it's in a community group, whether it's in your church, in your flock group, or in your adult Sunday school class or Calibrate class or whether it's on a committee or whatever it might be, at work or at home, you are leaders. And that is also where we can be salt and light in a world that desperately needs it. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for telling us the wrong way, but also revealing the right way to us. Thank you for giving us the ultimate example of the best leader, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Thank you for